Rock the Bottom Podcast with Andrea and Martin begins now. I really believed that if I stopped completely, I was going to either commit suicide or I was going to end up being committed into a mental institution. Like I thought, this is as good as it gets for me. Welcome to another compelling episode of Rock the Bottom Podcast. We just had the pleasure and the honor of sitting down with the Honorable Mary Beth O'Connor, who was a an administrative law judge. But before that, she was a survivor of trauma. She was a an addict of many different substances. And her life was spiraling quickly. This was such an, you know, a riveting, honest interview. I mean, all of our interviews are, you know, honest, of course, but it's just, you know, she was just so transparent, so candid in her struggles and 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 you know the 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 tumult that she had gone through in those early years and how it led to an addiction that really ravaged her life and had really taken a hold of her life for 20 years and so this is definitely one that you're going to want to hear and how she was able to uh traverse those those rough waters and to find herself on the bench um as an admin a federal administrative uh law judge right and i i think i said to her in the interview you know it sounds like it's this it's this happy ending story and um that you as a as a listener and myself, I was like, how am I going to relate to this? Because this sounds like okay. So from junkie to judge, how does that all play out? Uh, but Mary Beth really kind of <laughs> strips away um, and and presents the humanity of it that is uh, universal and accessible to all of us. And you know, her story is uh, her story just has so many nuggets of wisdom that it was yeah, it was a real pleasure to sit down with her. So let's jump in. Absolutely, here she is. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. It is an honor to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Mary Beth, there are many, many elements to your story, which obviously we'll start to uncover. But I want you to take our listeners to the beginning, well, pre-rock bottom, and explain what life was like, and then take us into what you identify as your rock bottom. Yeah, so um, my story actually was problematic from the beginning. <laughs> my mother was an unwed woman in 1961, Irish Catholic, you know, working class family. And that was an issue. Um, and so I always say my story started trouble, trouble before I left the womb. And uh, but it was it was a challenge. So I actually lived with nuns for the first six months of my life. And then my mother married who became my sister's father, which was, was, um, he was a nice man, but they didn't get along. Um, but the real, real, uh, problems really escalated when I was nine, when she married my stepfather and he was a really violent man. He was, you know, verbally, emotionally, physically, and sexually abusive to me. And he was physically abusive to everyone while well, my sister, my mother, not as much his son, my brother. Um, but so, you know, I'm moving, I, I, I had, um, my mother wasn't really connected or bonded to us. So I was sort of vulnerable in a way. I never really felt seen. I never felt supported. I didn't even understand it. I had some OCD like tendencies, even as a young child. 
Um, but then we move in with really a, a crazy person and uh, things get a lot worse. And so at first I tried to understand what he wanted from me, you know, and to adapt to him. But after a while, I just realized it didn't matter. There really wasn't about what I was doing. Um, there were things I could do and techniques I developed to sort of reduce the risk, but I couldn't get rid of it. There was no controlling him. And so there was just that that pressure, that stress of every day you're on eggshells. You don't know what's going to trigger him or flip him off. Um, now, I don't want to make it sound like every day we were getting beaten because we weren't. It's that you never knew when things were going to go off the handle. And so there was that kind of stress and strain on me. And so for me, when I first got exposed to my first drug, which was alcohol, when I was 12, it actually seemed like a help. You know? I mean, it made me feel more relaxed, more engaged. I, you know, my mood was lifted. Um, so it seemed like, well, this is useful. This is, you know, fun. This is a way to get out of my head, a way to let, to breathe a little more easily and not be as tightly clenched and, you know, in fear. Um, but uh, I quickly was pursuing it, you know, excessively and more than my friends. And then I, I moved on to pot and pills and acid. And then when I was 16, I found what became my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. And I was shooting meth at 17 years old. And I was in full bore addiction when I was 18. I, you know, I was using meth almost every day. Uh, on graduation day, it actually hit like the nerve in my hand when I shot up. And you know how when they give you your diploma, they give you the diploma with one hand and they shake the other. Well, when they shook that hand, I almost screamed I was in such pain. I mean, this is this is where I am at 18 years old at high school graduation. So that, you know, it would have been nice if I could say, well, that was my bottom thing. You know, things were that bad. But I did do better for a couple of years. I went to college. I went to Berkeley. I didn't use meth most of the time. I didn't pursue it, which was really, you know, a big, a big help. Um, but I used other alcohol and other drugs, but mostly weekends or intermittent episodic, you know, few days in a row kind of thing. But I had a really bad multi-assailant rape in college. And then I moved in with an abusive boyfriend and I, my ability to cope was just pushed beyond its limit. And I turned back to meth uh, in the middle of my senior year of college. And the next 10 years were just misery. I mean, it was, you know, I say I worked my way down the corporate ladder because I couldn't hold a job because I couldn't get there on time. I couldn't concentrate. So every job was less money and less responsibility. And I held it for less time. Um, but also I was just, you know, physically breaking down by 32 years old. My body was so stressed. I was having physical problems. I was really emotionally beaten down. I was really in a hopeless place. And so for me, it was that, you know, escalation really from 12 to 32, where things just overall got worse and worse, especially from college to 32. So that was really the end point for me. I went into rehab when I was 32 years old. So I know that uh, listening and reading some of your um, other interviews that you went into rehab, but at that point you weren't really seeking rehab for recovery. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
That's true. I think there's this fantasy in society that everyone who enters recovery is 100% committed. That is, in my experience, rarely the case. Most people are ambivalent. They have mixed feelings, but it's also a lack of belief that you can do it, right? There's a lack of confidence that it's even an option on the table. And so for me, it wasn't that I wanted to keep using because, you know, life was miserable. Um, I was miserably unhappy. It was that I couldn't imagine not using. That was more than I could imagine. And so in my mind, the only possibility on the table was to figure out how to use less so that my life would be less miserable and less chaotic. So it wasn't that I was committed to keeping using drugs. It was that I didn't view stopping as a possibility at first. And so I just wanted to sort of have a breather in rehab, a break, and see if I could get some level of control back. Um, so yeah, but that's more common than I think people realize is that lack of lack of certainty that you can do it. And also, you know, you, I mean, I was using for 20 years, there is an emotional connection, it's a tool. You know, part of me, I really believed that if I stopped completely, I was going to either commit suicide, or I was going to end up being committed into a mental institution. Like I thought, this is as good as it gets for me. I am managing my trauma, my symptoms, my pain, the best that can be managed. And my other two choices are worse, <laughs> you know, and that's really how I viewed it. That was my perception. It was wrong, but that's how I viewed it. And so you go to this space to like your little oasis, a little time for reflection of re rehab and it, it wasn't a fit even. So, so even if you were bringing all of your trauma and your 20 years of addiction with you, there wasn't anything there to cradle you personally. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a good fit for me. There were some things I got from it, but it wasn't the right fit. So I had called around looking for a recovery house, you know, that would take me and I, I had financial limits, you know, I hadn't been working much. Um, and so I went into a women's program and it was a longer term treatment program. They wanted you for a minimum of 90 days. And I really thought that I did need that. And I did end up staying actually five months. But in my mind, I'm going in for medical treatment. And when I got there, I was really shocked to find that the only um, option they were offering me for peer support and the philosophical basis was 12 steps, which is the, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous model. And 12 steps, while it works for many people, and I'm happy for people who find a good fit there, it wasn't going to work for me. Um, in 12 steps, you have to agree you're powerless. I wasn't comfortable with that. You have to um, accept a higher power. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in higher powers. And you had to agree to turn your will and your life over. Again, not an idea that I was comfortable with. Um, but they told me and they told me adamantly and repeatedly that this was the only way. And that was really a shock that I was in a place that wasn't even really trying to find a way to help me. They were telling me I had to comply or I was going to fail. And that was, um, that was a dilemma. That was a big dilemma for me. So you, you have to kind of fight this system that might potentially be able to offer you some support, but like you were going for 20 years at this point of distracting yourself from whatever had happened, right? This, the, the sexual assaults and then co compounding those experiences, trauma upon trauma upon trauma. So what, ha what happened for you in that space? And it might just be a hindsight awareness, but when you were there, 
how did you find that oasis for yourself? I mean, part of the dilemma was, as you say, I'm looking back at 20 years of really a lot of bad decisions, right? And so it was scary to be challenging the, the orthodoxy I was given by the, I thought, medical professionals, uh, professionals with, a, you know, recovery uh, education. They at least had recovery certificates. They really weren't psychologists or psychiatrists, although we did have therapists there like once a week. But so it was scary because they're telling me, you must do this. And I know it's not going to work for me, but I also know, well, but I've made a, you know, a lot of poor choices. Maybe can I trust my judgment? Can I trust myself? Do I actually know what's going to work for me? And, um, and so that was problematic. But what I, what I decided was that there are some good things here. I mean, they did teach us things like, you know, some some of the science of substance use disorder. They taught us, uh, you know, we did deal with family dynamics. There was a trauma group because, I mean, I was in a women's program and 90% or more of the women had trauma histories. I mean, that's very common for women who use substance use disorder, especially when they start young. Um, so, and they taught us things like, you know, how to recognize and handle triggers and, just a lot of classes that had information that was useful to me. And even the 12 steps, I mean, I went through, I read all of the big book, which is the AA book, all of the NA text. And I looked in these steps, as I read the explanations, are there ideas here that I might be able to use, even though I'm not able to do the whole thing, you know, can, are there pieces of it that I can use? And there were, I mean, there were some good ideas there that I was, that were useful for me. They, they have a mantra one day at a time, which is really a core 12 step concept. And I found that really useful. You know, when I was having a craving day, I would just tell myself, I am not deciding about tomorrow. <laughs> Today I'm going to not use, you know? And so I tried to find all the things there that would help me and just ignore the, all the other parts. But it was, it, there were moments of real fear. Maybe they're right. Maybe I can't recover. Maybe there is no recovery for me if I can't do it this way. Um, but on the other hand, I thought, could it be possible really that no atheist in the history of the world has ever gotten sober? <laughs> like that seemed unlikely. So, but it was, it was a lot of going back and forth that really was unnecessary if they would have just educated themselves about the options. During this 20-year reign of addiction and trauma and compounded trauma, because I'm thinking at 12 years old, you know, pre-adolescence, adolescent stage, there's a lot going on, you know, hormonally and cognitively. And, you know, that's when you start to, you know, get into 14, 15 years old, you start to, you know, develop your identity, you try on new identities, you are, you know, coming into, you know, you know more um, uh, abstract thinking. You're starting to explore. You're looking to develop who you're going to be in the world. What are your interests? What are your past? And it sounds like, it sounds like you were, you were unable to do any of that because you were literally just trying to numb the pain and the trauma where you couldn't, you know, kind of spread your wings and, and, and explore this, you know, this, this, this world that awaits you because you were just trying to survive day to day and not feel this immense pain. Yeah, that that's true as far as sort of like outside interest in thing. But the one uh, advantage I had was I had always done well in school. You know, I had done well in school from when I was, you know, in kindergarten. I always got a lot of special attention at school. I was always 
uh, sort of the teachers noticed, you know, that I was able to do a higher level of thinking and that. So I always had that at least. And when I was really using drugs, the one place that I still got the positive reinforcement, but really it was, it was also just that they noticed me, you know, like I didn't really get noticed in my house except in a negative way. These teachers noticed me. They were happy to see me. They were excited if I asked a question that interested them. Their face would light up, right? So it was that there was a positive place for me. So I did have that, but it really was school was my positive place and using was really pretty much most of the rest of my life. So that was really your sanctuary. I mean, if there was any silver lining in your life throughout, you know, that tumultuous 20 year period, or at least while you were in school, it would have been it would have been your academics and the fact that you got validation through teachers and things like that. Yes, yes. Although, I mean, once after college, I mean, my last job, I did word processing and I was only able to handle that for nine months. And I, you know, I had a Berkeley degree. I mean, that's where I had degenerated to. And I don't mean that that's not a job that's of value, um, but it was a job below my education level. And um, and I and even that I couldn't hold because I couldn't get there on time. And so even the the advantage that I had, the benefit that I had of, of being, you know, excelling at the academic level, I lost that in my, in my addiction because I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep, I couldn't participate in the world at a, at a, a reliable level. I wasn't a reliable employee. I couldn't do a good job. They, they may think that she seems like she's smart sometimes, but she's not getting any of the work done, you know? So, um, so that advantage was really lost. And it's when I got home, I remember when I got home from rehab and I was thinking about things and going through my files and I found my college transcripts and I was afraid to open them because I was afraid I had sort of lied to myself that I had done really had done well because it was so far away at that point. It was, you know, 10 years away that I wasn't even sure anymore how well I had done in college. I had to, I, I was shaking as I opened the envelope to look and see what were my grades really, you know, how did I really do? That's how far away it was by the time I entered rehab. And Mary Beth, I'm just curious as you, went through this 20 year period, were you able to trace its origins, the origins of your addiction back to that initial trauma that, that, that it started around 12 years, 12 years old? I did know that I was um, using drugs for the pain. I mean, I, 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 I appreciated that the, the challenge was that I thought it was working. So I thought I, I didn't, when I went into rehab, the biggest surprise for me was that, yes, it is true that I picked up drugs at a young age because of trauma. And then I had more trauma, as you say, after that, they kept me going, but it had also become true that my substance use disorder was my number one problem. <laughs> and so that was the surprise. Yes, you know, that's why I started, but that's history now. You know, what's really the problem now, before I can resolve anything else, I have to get my substance use disorder under control or I'm never going to heal the other parts of myself. And that was a new idea for me that I had not realized. So five months you stayed in, in rehab. Part of me wonders and is curious because you're deeply intellectual, um, whether you stayed in some spite initially because it was a program that 
wasn't going to be able to help you. And so that engaged your mind actively in a, how come this doesn't work? Let's solve this. But can you take us through the kind of recovery and, and where you, you bought in or where the rock bottom or your, you know, dark night of soul kind of occurred where you said, mm, I'm ready to sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. I mean, I think the rock bond was right before I went into to rehab. You know, I did actually use three times in the first five months and I was in rehab for five. I used twice when I was there and luckily did not get caught. So I didn't get thrown out. And I used once 10 days after I got home. And that was the last time. But three times in five months, you know what? That was pretty darn good from my point of view. And that's not an uncommon pattern either. But I stayed because they it was a it was a long term program when I went in It was 90 day program. And I really felt like I was so you know, as we said, in my day tore up from the floor up, right, that I needed something longer term that 30 days did not seem realistic for me. Um, and then when I got in there, they really recommended that I stay longer. And it seemed like a, a good idea to me. Um, and, and they, you know, I don't want to disparage them completely. I mean, I did get weekly um, therapist visit. My hus husband came up for couples visits. We did have classes. The women, you know, just connecting with women in a new way, a sort of building a support network was really helpful. Um, and for me, it was helpful to be sort of out of the world for a while and just physically recuperating and mentally, you know, some of the brain fog was going away. When I was in rehab, they did this, they did like vocational evaluations of us. And I remember one of the things was we got an IQ test and I was so relieved that my IQ was basically the same as it had always been. And that, you know, I hadn't fried my brain so much that I wasn't going to, that I had lost that completely. So, so there were a lot of reasons to stay um, in there. And then when I got home, I started looking for alternative programs to 12 steps. That's when I began that search and i would imagine you know thinking about the trauma that you had endured and we know that one of the one of the the, the main effects is the the distrust right you, you start to not trust the world in general because the world didn't keep there was there was nobody that, that, that was able to keep you safe when you were at your most vulnerable point and so you you're looking at people you know warily and 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 you just you just don't trust and so i would imagine as your giving yourself to this program and you're starting to connect with these these other uh participants that that was also a struggle and and just being able to again expose yourself to possibly being hurt again right in some way shape or form and so just the just the difficulty i would imagine of that entire situation and coming to trust your own judgment mm -hmm. because again we know that's another effect of traumas where you you don't know what to trust and what not to trust not just externally but internally am i capable of making the right decisions like you said so if you can just you know kind of talk about that uh, i don't know if there's a, a certain anecdote where where you were able to you know prove to yourself that okay i can trust myself with this this particular situation or somebody else is trustworthy because they demonstrated this but just talk about that a little bit, if you would, please. Well, I will say this. When you're in um, recovery um, house inpatient, um, at least my experience was, it's really sort of, it's a, for me, it was a group of women, most of whom had been using for, you know, 10 or 20 years like I had. 
And now we're together. It was almost like teenage girls being forced to live with each other. Like none of us had good communication skills. We were emotionally volatile because we're coming off drugs. And also we have no experience in appropriately handling our emotions or appropriately responding to conflict. And um, and people did really rebel against the authority of like the house mother and the rules of the house. There was a lot of complaining and carrying on about doing fair share of work and things like that. So it's an interesting dynamic because it's sort of like, you know, you're in this crazy summer camp kind of a thing where everybody's on behavior appropriate for an age far below their actual age, but we have no skills, right? We have no skills. And so there was that side of it. Um, But to get to your bigger point about the trust, I didn't realize um, for quite a while after I started recovery that I actually had PTSD and that um, that I had my anxiety, which had been high since I was a child. uh, It started out high because I didn't have a good bonded connection with my mother. When I was a little girl, when I would try to get to sleep, my brain, you know, it's a spinning kind of a brain and I would have so much stress and anxiety. I used to I used to soothe myself like I, I made my fingers um, one was like a teacher and a fireman and a you know we friends and so I would like have conversations with my finger people at night uh, trying to you know calm myself down and um, and those kind of behaviors but as an as an adult uh, before and after recovery I really had a lot of distrust in the world treating me right and I really had a lot of uh, fears of one little mistake. This is my biggest recovery issue was the anxiety. One small mistake and all my accomplishments are going to blow up in my face and be out the door. And I struggled with that for a long time. My anxiety recovery took a lot longer than my substance use disorder recovery. And I still struggle with that to a certain degree. It's just, as I say, I'm mostly recovered from that. I'm probably 95% improved, but that was a real challenge. And it was really PTSD caused, you know, initiated anxiety that I didn't know that I had for quite a while. And as you're going through this, this treatment program, I know you said your husband would come up for visits and things like that. Was there any other family support? Because I know you hadn't mentioned your mom or certainly not your stepdad at that point, I would imagine, but your siblings, was did they know that you were finally getting your life together? Was there any support uh, beyond your husband? So they don't live, none of them live near me. Um, my mother had left my stepfather when I was my freshman year of college. So, you know, I hadn't, wasn't talking to him and my mother and I had a troubled relationship, but my sister and I were close. I mean, and we still are, I say we're war buddies, right? We grew up, she's two years younger than I am. And we grew up together uh, until I left for college at 19 when she was 17. And we both had some similar struggles, but we you know, we understand each other at a deep level because we lived through, you know, both the experiences before my stepfather and then the experiences with him. And so she knew that I was in in rehab. I I told her, but I didn't tell my mother. Uh, In fact, my mother found out because my sister was living with her at the time and she read a letter I mailed my sister. And that's how, and so I told my mother, like when I had six months sober or something and, oh, I knew I read the letter you wrote, Cindy. Like, well, great. (laughs) Yeah. And so had you, had you, had you divulged to your sister as close as you guys were and she had experienced the same trauma, had you divulged to her that you had been abused all those years previous? 
Well, she she knew about the physical because we were often together, you know, with the beatings. And and so I'm the and I'm the older sister. I'm the oldest, right? And also I was just bigger than her. Cindy, I was tall for my age. My sister is small for her age. And so there was a significant physical difference between the two of us. And so I really felt obligated to step in with my stepfather. So I definitely got it worse than her, but she, but she did get it. And also that, you know, now we know that even witnessing trauma, I mean, even when we witnessed our mother being abused, that is a trauma, right? And so um, she didn't know about the sexual abuse. Uh, I told her about that later in adulthood, but she certainly knew about the physical and the emotional and the verbal she, because she experienced it too, or she witnessed it. Absolutely. And so you're going through treatment, you're extracting parts of it that work for you. And so just kind of take us through, I guess, the culmination of that process and where it led you. So when I got home from from rehab, um, I, I thought, you know, is it true that there's no other, you know, program besides 12 steps? I mean, rehab told me explicitly, repeatedly, there wasn't. And everyone I met in 12 steps, and I would ask, they would tell me, no, there isn't anything else. So um, I, I will say audience, it's 1994. So I went to the library, <laughs> because there's no Google. Okay. So I went to the library to see, are there actually any other options? And I and there were, they just hadn't told me. And so I found several of them over a period of maybe two or three months. And the first one I found was Women for Sobriety, which is the first modern secular um, recovery program. And they're really focused on self-empowerment and letting go of your past and a lot of positive reinforcement, positive uh, attribution techniques. And one of the things I really liked about WFS was that when you introduce yourself in a meeting, you don't say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. You say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. That's the introduction. And see, Andrea, I can see it's moving you, right? I mean, it's goosebumps. It was such a different um, approach. Now, this, and this is a good example about why recovery needs can change over time. In the beginning, I really didn't mind saying over and over, I'm Mary Beth, I'm an addict, I'm Mary Beth, I'm an addict. I felt like I sort of needed to pound it in my brain. But by the time I got to WFS, I have like, you know, seven or eight months sober. And I was starting to feel that it, that wasn't really an accurate um, you know, identifier. It was only a part of who I was. And if anything, in modern terms, I was already in early remission by seven or eight months. Um, and I just felt it didn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't consider the whole person. It was really only about part of it. And so when, when I heard the competent woman introduction, that just felt like this is who I want to be. This is what I want to build toward. This is what I want to build up. And so that was a real positive step. Um, and then I also found Rational Recovery, which basically is now Smart Recovery. Uh, and I found SOS at the time, Secular Organization for Sobriety. Uh, I'm on the board for LifeRing Secular Recovery, and they broke off of SOS in 95. And they focus on self-empowerment. So it's about rational decision-making, mutual support. All of them are about mutual support. And that's a reason why basically they all work equally effectively is because of the importance of that mutual support. Um, and also it's about self-empowerment again, that each uh, person is responsible for her own recovery. And so when I did the um, filtering the ideas for what I thought would work for me, that's what LifeRing would call building a personal recovery plan. It's your job to sort of uh, 
look, do the research and consider everything and not reject it out of hand, which I really tried hard with 12 steps not to reject all of the ideas when there might be some useful ideas for me, um, but that you have to decide what's going to work for me. You know what, you know best who you are. Um, and so what's sort of your philosophy or learning approach, but it's really also about what are your priorities in life, right? Because when you go into recovery, for me, I had broken most of every area of my life, but I couldn't fix everything at once. So I had to make choices about where to focus my attention. And so all of those things were playing into it. But that's what I did. I found I, the three new programs. I went to meetings, read all the materials. I never followed one. I just continued what I had started doing, which was looking for ideas I felt would be helpful and using those ideas. Just the the the, the little teaser. We're definitely going to explore this more in the roundtable discussion because I thought we both thought there was a real, this was really the crux of of your your recovery and why it worked for you because it was customized and it was it was it was a personal plan not just a rigid program that you were following through and through so listeners will know that will be more in the roundtable discussion where we will explore that so you have found what works for you and then where did that carry you next I mean, so I did have to also work on the mental health issues that I had of anxiety in particular. And so I, you know, I did individual therapy. Um, I eventually went into a group for women with trauma histories, which was really useful. And I did medication for a while for the anxiety, which did help me. And then also I started building myself up um, professionally. Uh, and uh, for example, when I got out of uh, rehab, my first job, and remember, I'm a Berkeley graduate and actually had good grades. <laughs> um, my first job was a part-time, temporary, low-level administrative job, because that's really all I was ready for. That's all I could handle at that point. I was 32 years old, and I had never you know, gone to work every day and stayed the whole day that I was supposed to be there and done a good job. I had never done it. I needed to get my feet underneath me. And I was lucky that financially I had the option, you know, to start with part-time work. And so then, you know, as the next job was a full-time mid-level administrative job. And next job was a supervisor job at a larger company. And then I went to law school um, when I had six years sober and uh, went to Berkeley again. And then I worked at a big firm and then the government and eventually I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. Um, but it was also that personal, right? So that's that's gets attention, right? I went from an IV meth addict to a judge, which is why I call my book, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Um, but the truth is what's more important on a day-to-day -day basis is the relationships, right? That I could now be a, I could be a real friend. I could show up and be there to help you when you needed it and participate in my family and, you know, and be a, a good aunt and sister and all those things. And mostly in my life is just so much calmer. <laughs> life is a lot easier when you're not creating your own new problems. I mean, life is going to throw problems at you no matter what, but you know, if you're not helping it along by adding to the list <laughs> on your own of things that are avoidable, life is so much better, you know, with that approach than it is with just um, stirring up more chaos, which is how I had lived most of my life. As, a, as the listeners are hearing your story, they're like, okay, so this woman is an incredible woman, right? And so that might distance her from my own experience, you know, to, to be able to survive what you've survived and then go on to do what you have done. 
I know that you had said that uh, anxiety is a piece that you still continue to work with. And so I might be sort of moving the curtain, you know, to see what the wizard really is. I think for our listeners and for me, for certain, is that knowing that even though a story can have a, a happy ending trajectory, that we're all continuously working with something, everybody, no matter who you see is working with something. And so anxiety being that for you, how has that, like, what's the evolution of that? What are some of the good things that it's brought for you? And then what are maybe some of the challenges that you've faced? I mean, part of my story is I have 28 years of sobriety, right? And when I, I had 20 years when I was appointed a judge, I had six years before I went to law school. None of this was instantaneous. And so part of what I learned in recovery um, was sort of patience and really uh, looking forward at, really looking at what goals I have and um, and what are realistic to focus on now, because I, my list would be longer than I could attack. And so I really had to learn, okay, so let's pick the top three to five items. And then what's the right next step toward that goal? Because that's all I can do is the right next step toward that goal. Um, For example, for me to even consider law school, I had to pay off debt, right? I had a lot of debt when I went into um, recovery. And so I had to get my finances, my finances under control. I had to work my way up from that part-time, temporary, low-level admin job, step by step by step. It wasn't, it wasn't quick. Um, and so that's part of it. It's also that I, I struggled with the anxiety so that I was actually, even though I was making a lot of the right next steps, I wasn't really enjoying it as much as I should because I was always afraid that I was going to lose it. And so the good thing about me was I would do it anyway, but it was not always a happy existence. You know, I was really, for example, if a, if a boss would say to me, oh, hey, can I talk to you later? Okay, that would just set me off on, I would be reviewing in my mind, what can I possibly have done wrong? Why am I getting fired? Okay, you know, what, what, what happened? What did some, and I would be picking through every little imperfect interaction with people or whatever it might be, just a lot of fear and trepidation that took many, many years to get under control. It was not a fast process and it was not always a comfortable process. Uh, and it took a long time to get to where I even felt like I had, uh, honestly, even with law school, you know, I struggled with that. I'll say the other real challenge I have was interpersonal skills. I, I mean, I was, my mother was volatile. My, my mother won on Jeopardy, okay, which is like a major coup, right? And I was there with her. And when we were driving the car back to the hotel, the, the, um, the, gar- the garage, the guy at the garage, she couldn't find her ticket. And he wouldn't let her in. And she got out of the car and she's screaming her head off and F you. It's, you know, it was, this is how I grew up. And I can behave that way too. I had a lot of... Um, I had difficulty dealing with conflict. I could be aggressive. You know, I I wasn't really as good at listening. I could be mean sometimes, you know, just my tone, even, even if I didn't intend it, my tone was not always good. So there were uh, listeners, there were a lot of areas I had to do a lot of work on. Um, where you're hearing now is 
20 years later, I was appointed a judge 20 years later, you know, 28 years now. And my anxiety is 95% better. And I'm in a happy place. But it's for me, it was really about finding a way to accept that it was going to be what what can I work on now in the right direction? You know, what and what are my priorities? Because I, I just couldn't fix everything all at once. I, I had I, I was broken in so many ways and I had broken my life in so many ways. I had to, I had to take a, a cautious, you know, analytical approach to how to move myself forward. And I, I think that's really important that you, you mentioned that because, you know, I talk to people on the crisis line and, and a lot of people who are in a crisis, you know, a, a a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're so overwhelmed. First of all, we put so much energy into the future, worrying and ruminating and fixating on what might happen tomorrow or next week or next month. And this stuff, and we always assume the worst possible scenario happening, right? It's never just, oh, well, if this happens, I'll be okay. I'll figure out a way. It's always like, oh my God, catastrophe is right around the corner. There's no possible way I can manage, right? And so for you to identify that that was an issue and you had to kind of step back and say, okay, what are my priorities? This is number one, two, three, four. I'm going to put my energy into this top and then I will work my way, you know, to the other ones instead of, you know, thinking, oh, my God, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. So I think that's really important that you kind of laid out that framework that people can, you know, apply to their own life to get them through the most difficult periods in their life. So I just want to acknowledge that. But the question is, at what point did you feel compelled or inspired to go into law enforcement? That's quite a lofty goal for somebody who had gone through 20 years of trauma and addiction. What inspires you to move into law enforcement? So um, I had actually gone to law school right after college um, to Berkeley Law. and But remember, I started using meth again in the middle of my senior year. And so by the time I got there, I was not capable of doing it. So I did attend for a while and I passed, but I mean, I barely passed. And at some point I realized I can't do this. Like I'm, I'm going to eventually fail out of here and I will never be able to pass the bar. You know, it's not going to happen. So I, I withdrew. It was a huge, painful loss that due to my addiction and I knew it was due to my addiction that's not what I told them but that's what it was um it was horrible painful loss people would have killed for that spot that's a top 10 law school and my meth took it away from me um and so when I got sober uh I you know I worked my way up you know to a supervisory position and what in some it's five years let's say and I what I realized was I really wasn't that interested in my boss's job or my boss's boss's job which means I'm not in the right place right so I had to really well so what do I want and at this point I'm like in my late 30s and I I thought about going back to law school but I, I was I was afraid of the rejection you know I was afraid of having to explain myself of what had happened it was just so painful for me um, but in the end, I decided, all right, I'm I'm 38 years old. Either I'm going to do it now or I admit you're never going to do it and let's find another path. 
Um, and I decided, well, let's try. And so I took the law school admission test and I did, you know, really well. But Berkeley wouldn't take me back at first. I ended up at Hastings, which is in San Francisco, and it's a very good school. But um, I was number three in a class of 400. And so then Berkeley let me transfer back and I graduated from there in the end. And so it was really a... Um, a reconnection um, to a goal that I had had when I was younger was to go to law school. But um, the first time I went, it was in 1984. And the second time I went, it was in 2000. That's how long it took me to get back there. So I went to a big law firm in Silicon Valley, which is where I was living. And, um, and the work was really challenging and interesting, but the hours, I mean, they pay you good money, but they own you. And I knew it. I mean, it wasn't that it was a surprise, you know, I knew what I had signed up for. But really, after a couple of years, I just wasn't, uh, I wasn't happy there. And then what happened really was that my best friend from college died of a heroin overdose. Um, when I had uh, 12 years sober, and that really caused me to revisit my priorities. Uh, is this how I want to spend my life? Part of it was that I felt a little guilty. Had I tried to help her enough? Had I been absent because I was working too much? You know, all those second guessings, which happens when someone dies like that. Um, but I really stood back and, and thought about, is this the job I want? It was important to me emotionally to get the job, you know, to be able to go back to law school and then to go to Berkeley and to do well enough to get this top tier job. It really uh, it, it filled a hole. It helped repair a pain that I'd had over the loss. Um, but it, but now it's really but is this what I really want? You know, now that I've done it for a while, I'm only, you know, at this point, let's see, like 45 years old or so, I'd have to do the math. Uh, maybe I'm older than that. 50, close to 50. What is this how I want to spend the rest of my time? And um, Gina's death just really was a focus point for me. And what I decided was I, I don't want to work this much. That's not how I want to spend my time. And so I got a job doing litigation for the federal government. And um, I did like class action work and other types of litigation. And then the judge job, you, you take a test for it. And so I knew other people who had done it. Believe me, when I when I got sober in 1994, this was not on my list of career goals. <laughs> okay, I'm going to become a judge. <laughs> no, <laughs> that didn't, wasn't even on a list of remote possibilities. Okay, um, so, but I had seen people do it. And so I decided I would take the test. And, you know, I did well in the testing and and, and I got hired. But, um, and so at that point, it was, it was, I had 20 years sober at the time I was appointed uh, a federal administrative law judge. Yeah. I know that in stories of, of addiction, you know, it's not like substance is just forgotten. So now you've spent this huge chunk of time and you've got this sobriety under your belt, but what was, what is your relationship with substances? You know, I, I spoke with a friend who one of her vices had been nicotine and even still now, you know, 38, almost 40 years um, sober, she'll walk behind someone that's smoking and occasionally just go... You know, just because she still she still has a love of, of of nicotine, but she knows that it's not you know for her. Yeah. So I mean, I have a hard line. Um, I don't you know do any mood altering substance, not alcohol or you know or cannabis or or anything else, except of course if medically needed, I do as little as possible. Like I had gum surgery, and they give me I don't know eight Vicodin, and I'll take two or something. Um, 
other than that, I don't, I don't mess around with the line. But as far as my relationship with it, part of it for me is that at one point, one of the important realizations was that I could either use drugs or I could be productive and happy, but it's, or (laughs) there is no world in which Mary Beth gets to use any of those substances and, and be happy and productive. And, um, in the beginning, early recovery, people do feel like it's a loss, you know, to lose their, their substances, to lose the option, um, for, for for most people, for many people with, especially as long and severe as a substance use disorder as I had. But with time, I was able to see how that loss was really tiny compared to what I gained. Um, And so I don't, I really haven't struggled with it for the last 25 years. Uh, On the other hand, I do remember and I, I do feel it. Sometimes people will say to me, well, you have, you know, 28 years. Can't you have a beer? It's like, no, because here's here's what would happen. I know me. I, I can I I I know where that brain would go. I would start negotiating. Okay, here's what we, so okay, I had one beer at the ball game and that was okay. So how often can I have a beer and it's okay? Well, if I could have a beer, what about pot? What if I just did meth on my birthday? Like, you know, like this is where my mind is gonna go. And so I don't mess around with it because in part because I haven't forgotten. And I do believe that if I picked up the, maybe not the first time, but the odds are high, too high, much, much too high that I would eventually start into that obsessive thinking and that, you know, that chaos and getting my brain focused on when can I use, what can I use, how often can I, I there is no I have no desire to have my brain filled with that chaos again. It's gone. I want to keep it locked up and, you know, shoved down as deep as it can be. So I don't mess around with the edges because I do believe that that is most likely how it would turn out. (laughs) And this is this is confirmation that your rational brain is running the show I, you know, talk about the addicted brain versus the rational brain. I know you've, uh, you know, you, you've talked about the sober brain or, or sober self versus the addicted self, right? And again, because your addicted brain or addicted self is always going to, it doesn't matter if it's been 20 years, 30 years, it will try to find a way to convince you that taking that first, <laughs> that one drink is okay. Look at how successful you've been, Mary Beth. Look at how much clean time you've got. You're responsible today. You're not that same person. You can do it. And you say, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh. That, that is not the way it works for me. I know me. The evidence shows that I do not have a healthy relationship with substances. So, so, so again, that's also a very important point for anybody out there who kind of finds themselves teetering, you know, listening to, you know, your addictive brain telling you one thing, your rational brain telling you another thing. Just know that your addictive brain will never, it'll never just lay down and be quiet and give a fight, Right. It may get quieter over the years as you strengthen your rational, sober brain and you engage in these recovery behaviors, but it's never going to be satisfied and just say, okay, well, sober self, you win. I'll just, you know, lay down and die. If only it were that easy. So thank you for pointing that out. So as we go into kind of the the, the wrap-up portion of of this interview, so you, you were an administrative law judge for how many years? For five and a half years. And then you retired when? In uh, January of 2020. Congratulations. And then you decided to write a memoir. 
I did. I did. I worked on it for a number of years. And so I, I mentioned earlier, I, my memoir is out. It's available on Amazon and all the usual sites. And I really, um, I really wanted in my memoir to, to, to not just go into the crazy addiction part, which I think sometimes is what the books are about, but I wanted to show what led up to it. And so I do cover the trauma and, and the neglect. I start out, um, you know, with my early life about how things progress to, to really explain to the reader why it seemed like a good idea to pick up substances at 12 and why it kept progressing. And eventually I was shooting meth at 17. I really wanted that trauma addiction connection to be clear. But, um, and also I do go in the first couple of years. I, so I go through the chaos of the addiction, but then the first few years where I built that individual recovery plan. And also I talk about the trauma recovery as well. So I go through that, you know, that whole arc to sort of tie that up. And yeah, it's called, um, which I call my story from junkie to judge, one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. And, and I'm also on the board, I do advocacy around multiple paths to recovery. I'm on the board for Life Ring Secular Recovery. I'm on the board for She Recovers Foundation. I do podcasts and, you know, workshops. And my goal is always to just, I just want people to know they have choices. So they have the, they find the right fit. So they have the best chance of success. A lot of times the right fit is 12 steps, you know, yay for you. You know, there's a lot of those types of meetings. But if it's not, I want you to know you have your options so that you can find your people and your place and therefore your odds of succeeding are going to be higher. Thank you so much. So our question is always to our guest, uh, if there were words that you could share with somebody who might be in a similar space that you had been right now, uh, what what might you offer them? I would, um, I would like them to try to find some hope, you know, in my story and in others that recovery is possible for, for anyone. I mean, whether it's recovery from a substance use disorder or child abuse or sexual assaults or even, uh, you know, eating disorders, all those other behavioral disorders and mental health struggles. Um, it is possible to recover even when you have them in combination, it's possible to recover. It is, it's a process though. And so part of it is just giving yourself permission to, um, to take it slow and get your feet underneath you and not feel that you have to leap forward. You know, to be honest, when I see people um, fail, a lot of times it's from trying to go too fast in any of their recovery areas. It, have hope. People have, other women, other men have done it before you. You are just as capable and competent as the people who have succeeded. You know, you will find your place. You just, um, just need to have enough hope to start the process. You share your story in such a in such a beautiful, accessible way for for everyone. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you for joining us for for this episode. Rock the Bottom Podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to like, subscribe, or share.